John, welcome to the Building and Growing podcast. We're delighted to have you here today. Thanks, Lucas. I appreciate the invite. Looking forward to the chat. You're most welcome. So, John, um, I, you know, I was going to run ahead and introduce you, but would you like to introduce yourself and uh, we'll kick off from there? Cool. At least I'll try and do that part well anyway. So, <laughs> uh, my name is John Ryan. As you know, I'm the CEO and founder of Gigable.com. Uh, we'll get into what Gable.com is a bit more uh, later, I think, but uh, I'm 37 years old. I've got a kind of a varied background, uh, nine years in the Irish Irish Army, mm. retired as a captain a few years ago. Before that, I was in finance. I did a finance degree, was a stockbroker, um, but also did an MBA along the way there as well. Fantastic. So I've got a bit of a mixed background, but but here I am, uh, founder and CEO of Gable. Indeed. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, what a variety from uh, from stockbroking to the military to an MBA and, you know, now the yeah, founder and CEO of a tech startup. Yeah, and I remember the moment actually a few years ago when I did realize actually I want to be an entrepreneur because I had done a couple of different things and I loved the army. I really enjoyed being in stockbroking as well. I was an equity analyst, very yes. analytical. I liked that. I did an MBA, got really into business as well, but it was only when I was in my kind of mid 30s really that I realized actually, do you know what would suit me? My skills, my interests would to get into entrepreneurship. So bit late realizing it, but I'm, I'm very happy that I did eventually anyway. Indeed. And look, better late than never. Exactly. Yeah. Was there any, let's say, one particular skill or focus that, you know, you found um, you were able to apply in, you know, as a, a, an equity analyst in the military um, and now as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, there's quite, probably quite a few, you know, but I think the one that's probably most translatable from, you know, we'll start with the, the finance and the stockbroking side is being able to kind of model the future. Mm-hmm. that's yes. that's tough like because it's it's impossible first of all right indeed, indeed. <laughs> there's kind of an element of arrogance to say you've built a model and this is the way it's going to be like that, that's not true right you've yeah. made your best guess and you've taken in the variables and that's essentially what equity analysts do as well indeed they're reading all the research they're analyzing the company they're listening to the the calls or whatever the investor calls with the with the ceo and all that stuff and then they're making a model yes on that basis so that's kind of similar to what you do as a founder you take in all the variables you're looking at you know the bigger picture the smaller picture, the internal stuff, the external stuff, the things you can control, control, can't control, and you're trying to build a model out of that. Indeed. So that would be the finance kind of relatable skills. I think from the military side, uh, you know, it's a lot of what the military is about is also planning, but it's also about being able to deal with a lot of uncontrollables. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. And just to keep your head about you when others can't or wouldn't like to be in that kind of situation. They, you know, most people... I think Steve Jobs said you've got to be crazy to be an entrepreneur. You know, nobody else would do it. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of true because there's so many things you can't control That's and so it. many things you're responsible for that you also kind of can't control, but you have to do your best. You have to chart a course and you have to find a way to, to win the battle, fight the war, get, you know, whatever analogy you want to use there. So I think that's probably, it's kind of more of a, you know, personal quality that the army develops in people that definitely helps when you're in, in the world of entrepreneurship. Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, one of the, the, the quotes I've heard many times is it's all about getting comfortable with discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's how much stress can you tolerate? And, yeah. how do you, and actually, it's not about tolerating it. It's about changing your perspective on stress. You know, mm-hmm. and just kind of looking at it from a different, like nothing is either good or bad. Was that Hamlet? I think was that was in, wasn't it? Nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yes, that's exactly the kind of mindset I've kind of landed on. Eventually, <laughs> you have to kind of get there because otherwise, you're just going to be like, "Oh, this is too much." You yeah, know? yeah. There's always just countless problems to deal with, and that's just the nature. But it's not that you're doing something wrong. Every business is just dealing with problems day to day. You know, it's just daily challenges and 
change that perspective on those things and you'll just find it a lot easier to, to get through it. Yeah. Uh, and that'll reflect on how you act as a leader and your performance yourself, your personal, how you feel personally. Yes. So it's it's actually crucial. It's a crucial point about, about the whole thing. Indeed. And what a fantastic quote from Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always say that quote and I actually didn't know where it came from. I'd forgotten. So I had to look it up when I was uh, preparing for it today. I said, where did that actually <laughs> come from? We can sure I wasn't quoting anything kind of controversial. Or yeah, anything. yeah. But actually, it's from, it's from Hamlet, actually. So that was going back to, to my school days that I still remember that. So that's you know, wow, 20 yeah. years ago. It's still in my head. So indeed, it's, it's indeed. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And look, John, tell us about uh, about Gigaboo and your journey there. Yeah, that's a really tough question, I guess. You know, that's when I've been kind of, you know, you've got your pitch when you're selling what you are. You've got your, your pitch when you're, you're talking to investors and when you're talking to friends and family, what does the company do? But I really like to go back to Simon Sinek's uh, start with why model. So you've got the why in the middle. It's like the core of what you are. Mm-hmm. And you've got the, ha- the how, which is kind of the outer, the next layer. Yes. And you've got your outer layers, the kind of what of what you are, right? So applying that kind of model to Gigable because we do do a lot of things. We've got lots, a lot of stuff going on for us. Um, the what is essentially a marketplace. So mm-hmm. what we are is a marketplace. We've got business owners or merchants, primarily restaurants, some events and security companies, people yes. like that on the on one side of the marketplace. And then on the other side, we've got the gig worker community at large, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of whom are delivery drivers, some work in security events, stewards, hospitality, stuff yes. like that. So huge, huge gig economy uh, population out there now these days. Mm-hmm. So that's the what. The how is we're a platform. We're essentially a platform of technology. We've got web apps and mobile apps for both the merchants or the business owners, as mm-hmm. well as the freelancers, the gig workers on the platform. So, so that's our how. The why is always harder to put put your kind of your finger on or put good language about it. But essentially, you know, from day one, I thought it would be a, a great idea to create create a community around mm. what is a huge population of gig workers. You know, the lower estimates in the UK are about four point eight million gig workers. Wow. Upper estimates are about seven million. Yeah, sure. But there's is. no real real kind of connection there. There's no real identity for gig workers. It's quite centralized in a few big players. It's yes. not like readily accessible. So so really, the why of what we're doing is to create a kind of a fair and transparent and an open an open marketplace for mm. the benefit of both the merchants and the gig workers out there and actually that's quite a differentiated mission for us or quite a differentiated why there's not really anybody trying to do it in that way mm-hmm. uh, so that would be a very long answer as to what we are <laughs> fantastic yeah look i mean uh, doing a lot there and a lot to yeah, unpack um just a quick comment about what you said in terms of explaining what Gigable does to investors or other stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult because investors want to hear something, mm-hmm. merchants want to hear another, right. and uh, you know, as to other stakeholders. So it's tough, but I, I really like that model because it's actually good for yourself. Even like, what are we? You know, what are we doing? Yeah. How are we doing it? Or why are we doing it? It's just to remind yourself of that model i think it's brilliant it's a great book you know start with why it's it's one every founder should read when mm-hmm. they're starting out i believe it's, it's one of the ones i read i was lucky to read it yes. at the beginning of my journey so i did kind of try and define that why at the start you know um but it's a good model just to, to help you kind of put edges around everything that you do because every company does a lot of different things for different people you know it's and it's sometimes it can be quite hard to kind of create a statement around that that works for everybody indeed indeed so yeah. why don't we sort of dive yeah. into you know the multiple stakeholders that the platform works with um so you mentioned you know there are merchants there are uh, gig economy workers mm-hmm. if we start with merchants let's say you know restaurants what sort of pain points are you solving for for those stakeholders 
Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pain points in running a restaurant. It's a very difficult industry, and I think, you know, it's been quite widely publicized, and there was a good report last year by McKinsey. Um, yes. Basically stating that if you're delivering food from your restaurant through any of the aggregator platforms, you're losing money on it, <coughs> essentially. So, bless you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, you're essentially losing money. I think it's in the order of about a, a quid per per basket value. Average wow. basket value okay. is being lost on orders. Okay. So, the main pr pain point that restaurants have is they're not making money from, from doing delivery. Right? Mm. So, they're losing money. They're not making a profit. Um, yes. You know, that would be the primary point. The second pain point, they've kind of lost control of their own brands. They've become kitchens for bigger players who yeah. own, own the customer, own the brand, own the experience. And I think a lot of restaurants, especially brand conscious restaurants, you know, there's, there's thousands of them literally in London that are, are worried about their brand and, and losing their customer. Yeah. And the experience that their customer has once the food leaves, leaves the premises as well. Mm. Um, so that mm. that's a, a big issue as well. And I think just, just, kind of capture that really for merchants it, it's that kind of loss of control feeling as well that they're, they're not in control of their own destinies yeah you know, by by not having control of their own delivery operation of course these are restaurants who are who have delivery as part of what they do um you know being able to decide who's delivering the food to your customers having a regular team of delivery drivers yeah these things actually matter more and more now you know the customer experience with respect to delivery was kind of forgotten about in the early days was just get it out there any way yeah. you can as quick as possible and that still kind of is is important and it's not you it's not a trade-off con mm -hmm. conversation it's still something that you can do with your own driver team yes but when you you know what we're trying to do and what you know a merchant comes on to Gigable, they're getting back at control. They have their own regular team. They're getting to pick their drivers. Yes. They're taking control of the costs as well. So they're no longer paying 35, 40% off the top of their basket to an yeah. aggregator, which is kind of the going rate these days, unless you have extremely strong leverage in the yes. market. And the, the only players kind of who do have that kind of leverage are the big brands, like, you know, I won't mention any names or whatever, but <laughs> the big brands pay a tiny percentage of their basket value to get deliveries done. Yeah. Whereas the smaller restaurants pay a huge percentage. So in essence, the smaller restaurants around the bigger brands are subsidizing the delivery costs of bigger players. So it's all kind of, it's a bit messed up. Yeah. I think a lot yeah. of the more kind of uh, tuned in restaurant owners and merchants know that yes. as well. So we're trying to, to kind of correct that a little bit and just give them another option essentially. So those would be the main pain points for the merchants that we primarily serve at the moment being being restaurants. A little bit different for those in the events and security space. Mm. For them, it's, you know, using subcontractors or, or staffing agencies, they'd have a one in two turn up rate on average, like anecdotally, just from talking to, to some customers and, and other players. Yeah. With us, you know, we've partnered with a security company in Ireland and they had 95% turn up rate oh, wow. of, yeah. of people who actually wanted to be there. Yes. And that just comes down to the fundamentals of our platform. Like the, the gig workers have their own identity. Mm. It's a rated profile. They're choosing the day and the time and, and the shifts and the, the business that they want to work with. So they're in total control. Yeah. So they have ownership. So there's a kind of a recipro reciprocal relationship being built there that just doesn't exist elsewhere. So that was a really nice proof of concept. So they have slightly different points. But at the end of the day, they, they need to s fulfill a service. They need to do it as effectively as they can they need to keep control of their costs as well. So, so it's similar pain points, but slightly different depending on the industry that you're talking about. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So um, I suppose what you're, you're helping uh, the restaurants to do is, you know, reduce the delivery costs, choose, um, you know, uh, gig workers um, yeah. based upon, let's say, their rating. Um, uh, yeah. And it's the same in the, the security industry. Yeah, and on that first point, actually, I forgot to, to finish off the, the cost point of view, but the McKinsey study 
so that you lose about a quid per order. Mm. Using the same basket value with drivers that you got through our network, paying our fees and paying the drivers a living wage. Yes. As well per hour, same basket value would earn you about two pounds fifty profit. Oh right? wow! So wow. like we did that, and it was nice for us to be able to go right. Is what we're selling? Does it stack up to unbiased objective data from McKinsey? Yes, it does. Like so, it's lose a pound or make. 250 per basket on average you know yeah so yeah that was nice to be able to prove that out it could almost be a sort of a, a slogan you know <laughs> go from a, a, a loss to a profit with gigable that's essentially <laughs> it you know i think most restaurants that they're interested in hearing that story you know we notice ourselves even with our outbound conversations that we'd have from a business development perspective that most restaurant owners want to hear what we got to say you know yeah. they know that there's a problem um, and a lot of them are too busy to put their finger on exactly how to fix it or they don't even know so it's an education piece too indeed indeed yeah and uh, you know that thinking off the top of my head it reminds me of sort of transfer wise and their famous calculator um, mm. on their website you know where you would just type the numbers in and you could see that problem visualized there for you feel yeah. the pain and then think of transfer wise whenever you needed to make an international payment absolutely it just says it in black and white nice and clear there's no it's nicely about numbers it's just pure objective yes. information that you know is true you know so indeed that's, that's good, yeah. indeed so we've talked about let's say the the um restaurant or security operation but in order to you know let's say keep that operational promise to the customer mm. um you know you do need um the gig worker to fulfill it you've mentioned um that you pay them a, uh, a a livable wage. Are you able to talk a little bit about how you incentivize those gig workers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our platform is like essentially the, the gig economy is out there. There's whatever between five and seven million people in the UK in the gig economy, but large, largely they're kind of siloed in big aggregated companies who control what they're paid and what they you know what they charge the merchants as well on the other side. Yes. Ours is, is quite different. Like we're a decentralized marketplace, if you want to use that, that kind of terminology. So the merchants are in control, including in, in terms of what pay they're offering to mm -hmm. the market. And the freelancers or the gig workers, whichever whatever term you want to use, are also in control in terms of choosing which restaurant or which business they want to work with and you know the dates and the times and everything else that suit them. So, so yeah. it's totally decentralized. But what we do have is we've had a living wage initiative in the platform for a while where we're getting merchants to buy into paying a minimum. Fantastic. to their basically the gig workers that they use on average it's much higher than the living wage anyway i think it's about 12.50 in ireland and, and something uh similar in the uk as well in pound sterling obviously yes so you know it's already happening on average but what we want and it's actually just a way for businesses to promote what they're already doing is just to say we commit to this living wage initiative and every hour will be paid even if it's a quiet hour you're going to have a living wage uh, paid to you anyway. So Fantastic. that's a great way that we're actually going to build into our model as a kind of, this is how we do business. It's yeah. an initiative at the moment and we've had great feedback and, you know, a lot of buy into doing that. But in the future, it's going to become core of what we are actually, because it's, it's important for the service delivery to the merchant. It's important for the service delivery in terms of the customer experience, like the end customer, the end consumer, and also from the, the perspective of the gig worker, which is, which is the part that people often forget about is, there's a gig worker here who's relying on this for an income as well. And, and I think it's really important to keep them kind of center of mind too. So yeah. in terms of the incentives for the freelancers and the gig workers themselves, so one of the biggest ones we have is is essentially being able to say that I'm definitely working these hours. Mm. I'm definitely mm. getting paid this amount of money because we, we only do shifts on the platform. Yes. So that's a crucial differentiator too. So 
when you're a gig worker and you're you're checking into one of the bigger companies out there on a kind of an on-demand basis, you, you don't really know what you're going to be paid. You know, and I've spoken to gig workers or freelancers, delivery drivers, who've been checked in for two or three hours and made five quid. You yes, know? yeah. So it's not not great, <laughs> you know, especially if you're relying on it to supplement an additional income, like a, as an additional income to supplement a day job or whatever. Mm. Or if it's your full-time income, it's even more kind of uh, you know insecure and and kind of concerning. So all the work on our on our platform it shifts so yeah. there's a rate of pay that's transparency transparently shown as part of that shift that's on offer there's the guaranteed minimum that you will be paid yeah so they know straight away fundamentally that this is a different deal right so I'm, I'm getting dedicated work with a business who also has a rating actually so the business owners are also rated by the gig workers on our yeah, platform so yeah, there's indeed. a bit of leveling up going on there in terms of responsibility uh, so totally different deal from the outset but Within that, once they've been bought into the platform and they're doing gigs and they're earning money, we also have a partnership with a company called Collective Benefits. Uh -huh. they're, they're based in London here as well. I believe we were one of the first uh, companies that partnered with them for, for freelancer gig worker benefits, if not the first, definitely the first in Ireland, but definitely in the, the first couple, you would say, <laughs> in the UK. And essentially, you know, from between five to 15 gigs, I think are our thresholds at the moment. If you do five gigs in a month or if you do up to 15 gigs in a month, you get access to these tiers of benefits with collective benefits. Fantastic. So things like digital GP, mental health services, accident, inj accident and injury insurance, uh, compassionate leave payouts, family wow. benefits, deals and discounts at retailers, fuel cards. There's a whole suite of stuff in there. It's really good, actually. It's actually better than what you get as an employee in most places. Yeah, and, and all yeah, you have to do is indeed. just a few gigs a month and you get that access. So, so that's something we're very proud of as well. Fantastic. That's really good. So, you know, you're yep. looking to help uh, the, the gig workers understand what they're going to get paid. And then, you know, on top of that, there's the potential for some insurance uh, uh, and benefits. Um, I want to sort of just dive back into um, the example you gave about gig workers not necessarily knowing what they're going to earn, um, just for maybe the benefit of, of some of the audience. Um, so certainly based upon the research um, that I've done uh, from within the industry, let's say that you know, you, you're a motorbike rider, um, you might be paid a, a small amount um, to be on call and then you'll get bonuses based upon the number of deliveries that you mm. make. Um, so if you make five deliveries, you might unlock, um, you know, let's say 50 pounds um, in total and maybe a, an additional 10 pounds bonus um, uh, for reaching 50, um, you know, so 10 pound each delivery plus a 10 pound bonus at the end. Yep. Um, uh, are, there, are there any other sort of, um, uh, let's say, um, payment uh, or contractor models you've come across um, uh, that you know you're solving the problem for uh, yes yeah, so there's quite a kind of mix you know broadly in that in, let's say the delivery industry if we'll just stick with that because that's where a lot of the the gig worker focus kind of is where you know yeah. there's ways to that they incentivize through surge pricing when it's really busy at the weekends and stuff like that where you'll get more pounds or euros per delivery than you would on a wednesday morning or something like that so yes. they kind of balance it that way but i think fundamentally that kind of model is flawed in mm. many ways you know because first of all the service delivery gig workers are incentivized to hop between platforms and yes. who's going to pay me the most in this particular moment or not completely forgetting about the merchants who are waiting for their food to be picked up indeed so there's kind of some collateral damage to that approach no matter what way you cut it yes a and ultimately the centralizing aggregator platform that you know is controlling the order from the co cons consumer sending it to the merchant the restaurant and also, you know, scheduling, should we say, 
the gig worker or the delivery driver to pick it up like they're centralizing and holding all of that responsibility all of that cost so they they're fundamentally incentivized to keep the pay as low as possible mm. and keep the price as high as possible on the other side because that's the way they make profit is in the middle yeah so that's why there's a fundamental kind of a mismatch of or, or misalignment of incentives yeah there you know because as i said ultimately the lower the pay and the higher the cost the better off they are like that's just the business model indeed so it's kind of no matter what way you cut it up it's not really great for anybody in it now that's not to say that people don't make a lot of money freelancers you know some of them get on great on some of those platforms they make good money in college they do a couple of hours here and there and it really suits them they work the surge pricing hours so i'm not saying it's all bad you know that they've done a lot of great things and they've reshaped and created new industries so I don't want to be kind of ragging on them, you know, the whole time or whatever. But there, there are some fundamental flaws, I believe, in it that, that we're trying to fix or whatever. Indeed. Um, when it comes to other industries, then it's usually more straightforward. It's usually just they, they pay good rates of pay for per hour. So like we've seen jobs like where people are coming in to get what would be normally minimum wage jobs if mm. there's an employed person paying 14, 15 quid an hour nice. to get that guaranteed gig worker working with them every day. And they're happy to pay that because they get that control. They get somebody that they know coming in the door. They know that they're going to have people who are picking the days that they can definitely be there. So like people not turning up to a business is one of the biggest headaches for any business owner. Yeah, Like you need the food to be packed and, and delivered. You need whatever it is to be done in your warehouse. You, you need these things to be done. It's mm. not really mm. about like cracking the whip at the employees and making sure everybody turns up when they're told to. This is a much better way where people get to pick and say, yes, I will be here. Yes, <laughs> That's the day that works for me. Those are the hours that work for me. And I might be doing delivery tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. I can jump between jobs on different days if, if I want to, which, mm. which a lot of our, our gig workers do. Yeah, That just works a lot better for everybody, right? And and ultimately, they're being paid more to do it that way as well because the, the business really needs people to be there and be engaged and working and really kind of committed to that work for the hours that they are actually there. So. So we kind of we're trying to shake up that that industry a little bit with the new model as well. Indeed, fantastic. And John, you mentioned um, you know the fact that gig workers might let's say do you know one job one evening and a different job the day after. When it comes to to payments, how do you pay those gig workers? Yeah, so payments has always been a, a big part of uh, of what this platform is. It's how we met first a couple of years ago Indeed. in the earlier days in Revolut, and you know ultimately the merchant is paying the freelancer first of all right so they're paying the gig worker the freelancer delivery driver whatever through the platform yes so we've created ways for them to do that the kind of easiest way to do that and to onboard and, and get a payment system set up is through through credit cards or one of the gateways so we use stripe for that yes we built on revolut's business api then to create a direct kind of peer-to-peer open banking type integration with yeah, them it's not yeah. necessarily open banking always it depends on, on what the, the freelancers account is on so a really cool revolute integration there that that does enable faster payments yes uh but also in the future we, we've actually partnered it was it was in the press i think it was covering forbes last year with uh weaver another, yeah. another company that have, have an office here in london to build essentially a bigger uh stronger more complete ecosystem mm-hmm. for payments between merchants and uh and the freelancers on the platform that's just instant all the time like that's our goal so our goal that we set last year publicly we've had it for a while privately is to get all gigs on the platform paid same day yeah wow so like everybody i think on average at the moment it's about four or five days right Mm -hmm. and that's because things need to be cleared the the merchant needs to go in and check the hours and all that kind of stuff so we've made it a lot easier from a ux perspective for merchants to check into the gigable business dashboard and go 
yes, 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 they're all right, they're all correct, and that's it, and the payments can go, right? So that, mm. that's kind of mm. there already, but it's the systems behind that that we need to be quicker. So if that's on Stripe, it's going to take a few days to clear before it gets into the bank accounts of, of the freelancer. Indeed. So we just want to try and create a system and infrastructure there that makes it that as soon as the merchant says, yes, that's correct, it's ready to go and it's in the account of the freelancer to use and, and mm. spend whatever they want whatever way they want to it's something we kind of achieved with, with revolut yeah uh, if it was revolut to revolut yeah but we want that to be across the board for everybody regardless of what bank they're on yeah. so, so there's ways that we can do that and we're, we're kind of excited about that build and hopefully we'll have something to release there in the first half of the year as well fantastic yeah look moving to that sort of bank agnostic instant payments um, yeah will that's be the dream great yeah because <laughs> yeah. i i know cash flow can be difficult for a lot of the uh the gig workers so um it's definitely a great problem that you're solving we, we always you know we regularly and say we always regularly do needs analysis with the community and we're anecdotally always receiving feedback yeah uh, which is great you know they're, they're always willing to tell you what they want more of usually it's they want more gigs more yeah. variety so different types of jobs different type uh, different businesses different places like they, they, they like to mix it up generally yes but then yeah. second is always payments like faster payments everybody wants to be paid the same day indeed you know, ideally indeed. Obviously, there's there's companies out there that provide early access to earnings and stuff like that or whatever. It's not really a way that we want to address that issue. We prefer to address the kind of core problem, which is essentially the system that will allow, regardless of, of your bank or whatever, for you to receive that payment as soon as it's sent from mm. the merchant's account, you know. So, so that's ultimately the problem we'd like to solve first. Indeed, indeed. And John, you know, you're a venture-backed uh, uh, company. Um, are you able to provide us with sort of um, the VC thought process when they're investing in platform uh, platform businesses? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and it's something that you kind of learn over time. It's one of those things I wish I knew a couple of years ago so <laughs> I could frame the whole narrative and the whole investor deck and investor conversation process. But when it comes to platform businesses, a lot of it's going to center on your, your users, like your unit economics. Like yeah. that's really what what a good investor, you know, our VC or fund will, will be looking at if they know about your space. I think that's probably kind of a, a pretext in my answer is that investors who know about your space and who know about what they're investing in will ask these kinds of questions. Yes. A lot of investors sometimes just don't know about this stuff either. And you, you'll figure that out as a founder as you're having the conversation. Like, uh, is this kind of investor who's investing in a vision sense? Yeah. Or is, and they just like you and the team and the product. That's cool too. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing to say one way is more successful than the other. But then you have the more kind of read up and, and kind of more sector uh, specific and, and kind of sector experts that will ask you the more detailed questions. Generally, they're about your cost of acquisition. So how much does it cost you to acquire a new user? Mm. For us, it's merchants and the gig workers. What's your lifetime value of that user? Mm -hmm. So like how much money do you make from them over the course of six months, 12 months? Or how long do they stay with you? Yeah. How much, do, how much do you make from them ultimately? What is that multiple? So essentially, what's the multiple of your, your cost yes. versus your, your lifetime value? And does that multiple look attractive? You mm. know, So those are things you want to kind of grow your LTV, but keep your cost of acquisition ultimately going down uh, and down as low as you can possibly get it, which is something great about networks and yeah. community-based products is that those things can actually look, they're never going to look after themselves. Like That's the dream. But ultimately, your acquisition costs can go really, really low. Because mm. if a gig worker has a good experience, he's going to tell his gig worker buddies, which happens with us all the time, and just great kind of 
of mission accomplished yeah, moment for morality. us. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like yes, so people are kind of talking about this, you know. <laughs> and it's the same on the merchant side. Like we we've had merchants on board recently in London where they're saying, "This is I actually just didn't know." Yeah, about, and of course they didn't know about us. We've never done a big marketing push or anything like that. And even if we did, they mightn't know about us anyway. Mm, but mm. they're telling other restaurants or other dark kitchens, "I'm using this this company now. This platform is really really good." So, anyway, so there's the cost of acquisition. There's your lifetime value. Sometimes you'll get, uh, you know, I, d I haven't had this very often, but, you know, some investors are really interested in your sales process, I find as well, especially mm. if you've got like the hard side of our marketplace is the merchant side. Yeah. It's easier for us to acquire the, the freelancers and the gig workers, mm. which was totally upside down, by the way, during COVID. So oh, all really? of our data yeah. during COVID is inverted, <laughs> which I think is interesting. I've heard other people speaking even today about similar problems. Uh, but that was upside down during COVID. But yeah, that's the kind of harder side of our market. So sometimes you'll get questions on things that get a little bit more detailed and maybe not even framed this way but essentially what they're asking is like what's your return on your ad spend yeah like if yeah. you're spending five grand a month on ads targeting businesses how many are you going to convert into actual paying customers yeah yeah and what ultimately is your return on ad spend so it's kind of a similar thing but it's more focused on the direct kind of b2b lead gen side of the house and obviously your cost of acquisition will fold in that ad spend cost, but it'll also fold in the salespeople and your account executives and everything else. Indeed. So, so there's multiple ways to look at it, but those are kind of the key ones I think that uh, that I've uh, been kind of talking about for for the last while. Absolutely. And how do you generate revenue? Our, our revenue model is essentially primarily it's transaction fees. Mm -hmm. So when the restaurant is paying the delivery driver, they get charged a ten percent fee. So yes. if it's a hundred pound gig they'll pay us 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. The freelancer pays a 5% deduction. So they'll receive 95 pounds of that gig. So it's 15% in the middle. Yes. We also have a subscription now as well for merchants, which we introduced last year, basically Fantastic. to access the network and to use the software. So last couple of years, the company was founded in 2018. We kind of launched properly in 2020. There was yeah. you know, a bit of building and everything there. And since 2020, we've been very still, still focused on product building and merchant feedback loop and Indeed. getting the platform built up while obviously growing the revenues, improving the product market fit as well at the same time. So last year we got the products offered to like just an incredible level. Like we're just really, I'm really proud of that actually over the last couple of years, like the level of the scheduling tools we have, the driver tracking, yeah. customer engagement, the, the mobile app for the freelancers. It's basically an all-in-one platform mm. for both sides. Like everything is there, the admin, every tool you, you could need for, for this for this sector, for these pain points we've talked about is in there. Yes. So it was the right time then to say, yeah, look, there's a software access fee for that as well. Now we're, we're confident and we're very proud of the Fantastic. software we're offering. So in addition to the kind of the network piece, the transaction fee piece, we've got that, that SaaS model as well. Excellent, excellent. So look, I mean, you know, you're getting uh, uh, a transaction fee whenever a gig yeah. um, occurs, as well as um, the recurring uh, revenue through the SaaS fee, uh, which is excellent. Yeah, and I think the, the big thing for us actually with introducing the SaaS is maintaining volume and maintaining that commitment, which you kind of just touched on there. But, you know, for marketplaces, like there's a, you know, the sands of the marketplace do move, you know, there's a seasonal element to it and yeah. whatever places are busier or quiet or whatever. So what we really wanted was to build up that volume and then maintain volume over time. Yes. And one of your strongest levers for any founder out there in terms of behaviors of your customers and users is actually your pricing. Indeed. It's the best lever you have so use it you know yeah don't be afraid uh, i've often heard other people you know uh, podcasts and the like and tim ferris often says that one of the, the biggest mistakes early founders make is they don't charge enough mm -hmm. for what mm -hmm. they're selling or what they've got you yeah. know and they don't yeah. communicate that value in terms of why they're charging what they're charging well yes. to customers so 
So for us, that SaaS was actually, we didn't come to the SaaS thing where we were like, let's try and make more money from this thing. It was actually just, no, let's get like a kind of a longer term commitment from our merchants, from, yeah. from the restaurants that are using us, get them to want to use it week to week for that volume, like to consistently use it, you know, and, and be with us kind of for the longer term. So that was one of the levers that we had to kind of encourage that behavior was, was the SaaS model as well. Fantastic. And, uh, I, you know, I remember doing a study on um, sort of uh, the Amazon Prime um, and the amount of incremental revenue that that was generating as a result of, you know, subscriptions. And even when you pull out how many people would have purchased anyway, there's still a significant amount of revenue there. So I think subscription fees are a great way to encourage extra spend. 100%. It's, it's that commitment to the volume. It's the commitment to the platform. It allows us to commit more strongly to our customer too. Yeah. And yeah. That, like that, you know, genuinely when, when we get a customer, all of the merchants coming on now are signing up and paying the subscription and happy to pay just to even get access to the network. Fantastic. But for us, then we can say, yeah, we're, we're committed to this merchant. Yes. And then by extension, the community of gig workers that we'll create or, or, or that we'll bring into the platform, they're already there. We're not creating it, but we're bringing that community in locally. They have a sense of committed volume and committed merchants and committed platform as yeah, well. So, yeah. so that actually has probably been the, the number one tool or lever that we've introduced mm. recently to kind of get that level of, of kind of certainty and, and longer term predictability for everybody, yes. for ourselves, for the merchants and, and for the, the gig workers too. Fantastic, fantastic. And John, you know, we're in a period of uh, pretty high inflation. Um, you know, we were discussing before that everyone took it, you know, essentially a 10% pay cut uh, <laughs> in real terms. Um, what What is the platform doing um, to help support merchants and, and gig workers during this uh, difficult financial period? Yeah, I think for the merchant side, first of all, I, I think just being able to control and being able to plan your own costs yeah. is really crucial. I mentioned earlier as well about um, you know being certain that the people you have working for you are going to turn up mm. and that you mm. have that kind of support. If somebody can't make it, like our, our platform does it, but we do it as a company as well. Like if a delivery driver can't make it, we'll get you somebody else. Yeah. So we've gotten really, really good at that refulfillment uh, objective as well. So I think like fundamentally we can't change inflation like mm. we can't really fix that problem but we can fix the other problems that make business really really hard for yeah. restaurant owners that makes it impossible for them to essentially make a profit unless they change something Indeed. and to give them that kind of certitude in terms of their own service delivery their own hassle-free operation their way to kind of grow their own revenues and grow their bottom line at the same time so we're giving them a lot of ways to do that mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. which will indirectly help uh, help them with the kind of other obviously rising costs that they have in terms of their fuel or, or their inputs or their food or whatever that they're buying in indeed the gig worker side as well so we, we want to solidify that living wage initiative we yes. want to make it that every gig paid in the platform and every merchant on the platform is bought into that as i said we kind of have it in the background anyway and the average pay is much higher than that in both the irish and the uk markets anyway mm -hmm. but we just want to make that part of our our sla essentially is that's going to be core to it. Like, yeah. we'll do this, the merchant, if you commit this to us, we will commit this to you in terms of our fulfillment rate. Yeah. And the gig worker can also commit and, and know that they're going to be, you know, correctly remunerated for, for their time and their efforts, you know. So that's a core part that we can help uh, help address that issue. But inflation is a, a big problem that w we can't solve all by ourselves. So we can do, do our bits and pieces to, to help uh, people through it. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, John.
Look, we've we've covered a great deal today. Um, you know, from your background, uh, uh, you know, in financial services and the military, and and you know now fa- founding Gigable. Um, you know, sort of the problems that restaurants are facing when it comes to you know losing one pound per order um, uh, to you know potentially becoming profitable um, by using Gigable um, uh, with a you know sort of two pound or three pound fifty uh, uh, profit per order that you mentioned. Um, uh, you know the problems that restaurants and gig workers face, um, as well as you know the sort of VC uh, perspective of investing. Um, I wanted to see whether you know, uh, as a type of closing remark, um, you had any, let's say, your top three takeaways that you could provide to other founders and operators. Uh, top three takeaways. That's a good one. Okay, so uh, we'll start with the founders. I think uh, from. My perspective, I kind of touched on, on it at the start of the conversation as well. Change your perspective, your mindset to dealing with problems. You know, mm. tr- tr- it's really hard. It's like a daily practice. Yes. Because right? yeah. the, the reactive brain will straight away go, oh, it's another problem to deal with. Indeed. And, and sometimes that means you need to organize your time a bit better as well. So I think that's that's kind of the second follow-on point is, you know, first change your mindset to, to problem solving. Yeah. Um, second one is organize your time effectively because you can't solve all the problems alone. Mm, mm. You have to be selective. And if you have bigger problems, and problems is kind of a word that's interchangeable with opportunity, right? Yes. And, and things yeah. you're working on, uh, whatever that might be that's important for, for your business. Um, you know, create space for that, you know, organize your time to be able to focus on the important things. Mm. Um, we did an exercise as a team, as a management team, at the start of the year in terms of our strategic planning for this year. And ultimately, we were all talking about how can we focus on the 80-20 in, in our roles. Yeah, so what is yeah. the 80-20 for me as a CEO? What is the 80-20 for, for COO, the CRO, whatever? Because I think if you lose sight of that, and again, it's a daily practice. Indeed you will end up drifting into the weeds and just doing a lot of stuff that doesn't really, it, it all matters, but it does like degrees of matter. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> yeah. indeed. It's yeah. very easy to lose a day or a week or months even and look back and go the quarter and go, actually, I didn't put any time at all hardly into that thing that I thought was really important. Yeah. Why not? You know, is, is it because I didn't, I don't think it's important anymore? Probably not. It's probably just because you just got caught up in all the other stuff because there's just endless distractions there. So indeed. So kind of, those would be my kind of top three for, for founders, I think. For operators, I think I think in the hospitality space and actually in a lot of industries, there's a little bit of tech phobia. Mm. You know, people are afraid of what they don't understand. Yes. Even in a selling contents, uh, context, uh, you know, the number one reason why people don't buy something is if they're confused. Yes. They don't understand it, right? Which makes total sense. I wouldn't buy something if I didn't understand what it is or what it does for me. Yeah. So I think for operators, you know, d- don't, don't be tech phobic, mm. uh, you know, understand the tech stack in your business. Yes. There are a lot of tools out there, especially now, like there's been kind of a, an upsurge even in the last couple of years in terms of what you can do mm. through technology as an operator, whether it's through us or anybody, it doesn't really matter. Like there's loads of tools out there to help you manage your, your workforce or manage your working capital. Yeah. How you get access to money, how you spend your money, how you manage your, your power, your electricity, everything. There's there's things there you know, yes. that are cost effective pieces of technology that can really just take a lot of your hassle out of your out of your life you know so so i think that would be one of the key ones for for operators and i, I think that another one that's really big as well is, is just like educate yourself about your industry you mm-hmm. know i think a lot of the time when we're talking to to restaurants they don't actually understand their industry fully yeah and, and that's not 
by any fault of their own it's not like it's there's a guide out there for them to read and, and figure it out like you kind of have to pull it together yourself but you don't understand what are you you know what are you spending on having delivery with this partner like can you get more direct orders into your business do your do your customers want to order directly from you mm. you know i think there's a lot of studies out there now that show that customers consumers are aware enough at this point that they would prefer to order direct yes uh, and yeah. then ordering through a back form because it's cheaper for them first of all mm, <laughs> generally indeed, indeed. and it's also better for the restaurant and i think i think that's becoming better so so understand understand your your industry and i think maybe the final one for for just generally for merchants is you know there's a lot of people trying to sell you stuff mm. but it's good to you know talk to customers sorry uh, companies or, or providers or, or for tech companies service providers whatever it is and kind of try and find a way to yourself to differentiate who was actually there to try and help me my business succeed yeah and who's trying to just sell me something because <laughs> there's a lot of people who try to sell me stuff all the time and then there's a kind of five percent of those who actually have an alignment with where this business is trying to go indeed so you can figure that out you know and i think that can be something that everybody's oversold to these days right between social and and everything else yeah. so I, I get it it's tough and uh, it's tough as well for, for people who work in sales you know you, you have to try and find that alignment but i think for operators it's worthwhile because there are good companies and good businesses out there that are trying to help you and are aligned with your ultimate goals yeah but it does take a bit of effort to kind of to figure out which ones which ones are indeed indeed yeah i think at the end of the day you know alignment creates a really strong foundation uh, for yeah. growth yeah and it's often just not there you know because it's too transactional or mm. like we try we're always saying it we, we try to have a really consultative approach with our customers you know yeah yeah uh, on the merchant side and, and also on the gig worker side like are we actually aligned with what they want yes you know yeah. it'll dictate your product roadmap it'll dictate how you structure your sla it'll dictate everything you know yes. so if you're not aligned and you're not listening to your customers uh, then you're, you're never going to have the kind of perfect solution for them indeed indeed John, look, thank you so much for sharing those takeaways with us. It's been a, a fantastic chat. Um, any any closing remarks? Uh, just keep the chin up, keep uh, keep striving, and uh, you know, half the battle is is turning up. That's a great a great army one that I always remember. Is yeah, the hardest part of going on exercise, going overseas, whatever it is, is actually just turning up. Indeed, everything else Indeed. after that will kind of uh, take care of itself. So even the days you don't really want to turn up, just turn up anyway and do it, and, and you'll at the end of the day you'll be happier about it so likewise yourself lucas appreciate the the invite today in the chat and, and keep going with the content i think it's good stuff to put out there so thank so you thanks for having me on yeah no look john thank you so much yeah. and, and actually another quote just to compliment yours um uh you know which came from another podcast with um uh, ahmed Erelgin, um uh and he said um uh, a lot of people forget about finishing you know you got to finish, yeah. you know, focus on finishing. Don't focus on who's ahead or this and that. Just focus on finishing. So nice. uh, it's a nice yeah. complimentary quote to, to making sure you turn up every day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Turn up and make sure you finish. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. John, thank you so much for your time Thanks, and uh, I look forward to seeing Gigaball's progress. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you.